We're going to be continuing our series on pursuing Jesus from Luke. Uh, as Tim said last week, we've been in the early chapters of Luke. Now we're moving to the latter chapters of Luke. So if you've got your Bibles or some sort of device with you, then if you can turn to Luke 23. And I'm going to read through it in a minute. Uh, and I'm going to stop at different points along the way just to explain a few things. And then we're going to have a short break. Uh, when someone is going to share their testimony. Because if you remember, over these last few weeks, uh, we've encouraged someone to share their testimony of how they became a Christian. And so I'm going to offer you the opportunity to share your testimony in three minutes uh, as to how you became a Christian. And basically, you can just imagine, you're with a friend and they say to you, so... How did you become a Christian? That's, that's the question you have to answer in three minutes. So one of you will have the opportunity to do that very soon. So Luke 23. And I'm going to start reading at verse 26. And when they led him away, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Now, I'm, going to say, I'm not going to stop after every verse, but I do just want to mention Simon. Cyrene was uh, current-day Libya. So Simon was from North Africa. Now, he could have been North African, or he could have been a Jew, because there was quite a significant settlement of Jews in Cyrene, in that area of Libya at this time. And so he may have come to Jerusalem for the Passover, or he may have just been a merchant and he was grabbed in that moment by the Roman soldiers and said, come on, carry this cross. And, but we know a little bit more about Simon because in Mark, Mark refers to him in, as to his readers by saying, you know, you know Simon, he's Alex and Rufus's dad. Just in this way, you know, you talk about people. So we've got a son called Simon uh, so, so called Tim, and well, we've got one called Simon as well. Um, and so I might say to Liz, oh, yeah, Tim called, and, and she says, oh, Tim, and I say, oh, our Tim. Or I might say, oh, Tim and Carrie, you know, or I might say, oh, Tim down in Mid-Sussex, you know, you refer to them in that way, and that's what Mark is doing. He says, oh, yeah, he's Alex and Rufus's dad, you know, Simon, the one who carried the cross. But Paul also refers to Rufus in his letter to the Romans. And he says, oh, Rufus, he's an outstanding man of God. And his mother was like a mother to me. Uh, and suddenly you see this family put together. Now, we don't know what Simon's faith was in that moment when he carried the cross. But it, it looks like he responded to who Jesus was because we see his son, an outstanding man of God, and his wife, like a mother to Paul. And it just struck me that, you know, I'm, I'm a first-generation Christian in my family. So our children are our first Christian dynasty beginning. Well, for Liz, it's a, a little bit longer than that. Uh, but, you know, many of you have children who will be your first-generation dynasty. And, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful? You know, we think of our children achieving great things, but wouldn't it be great if within the family uh, that you have brothers, sisters, 
parents, aunts, uncles. There's that sort of testimony. Yeah, Rufus, he's an outstanding man of God. And his mum was like a mother to me. And I just think there's a great opportunity for us as the people of God to be inspired by simple things from the word of God. You know, we love to look at the big things, but there's simplicity there for us. Let's carry on before I get too carried away. Verse 27, and there were following him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. Well, weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green tree or to the greenwood, what will happen in the dry? It's a, it's a bit of a strange passage that. Who were these people? Well, they weren't the followers of Jesus who were women. So it's not Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and others who supported and followed Jesus in his ministry. The daughters of Jerusalem were sort of do-gooders in the best sense of that phrase. They were probably women uh, of independent means who helped people in Jerusalem. So if there was you know, a lady down the road who had just given birth, they'd be the ones who would take meals to them. Or if there was somebody grieving, then they would be there to mourn with them and to encourage them and comfort them. And so they may have heard of Jesus and seen some of his miracles, heard some of his teaching, and now they see him being led away to be crucified. And, and they're mourning him. They're weeping because they can't understand why this is happening to him. And then so Jesus turns on them. And says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. So what does he mean? Well, he could be referring to AD 70, about 30 or 40 years on, when Jerusalem would have been completely ransacked. It was invaded. And we know from uh, the historian, particularly Josephus, there were terrible, terrible things done to men women and children and at that time it's quite likely people would say I'd rather take my chance that a mountain fall on me than happen to what would happen uh, in Jerusalem but he also could be referring a little bit further because Jesus was heading to the grave and he's looking for them further forward saying there's a there's a day coming when the grave is coming for you, I, I'm going to be there three days. But depending on where you are on that day, you could be there for eternity in a place without God. And he uses this proverb. And it's not a proverb that is like, you know, many hands make light work that you, you know, everyone knows how it's said. This is more a style of a proverb when he says, um, if they do this to the green wood, what will they do to the dry? And it's like a, a style of proverb. What, like I might say, knock, knock. Someone will say, yeah, you see, you know that it's not a joke, but you know that style, don't you? Well, this was that sort of proverb style. It was a comparison between the greater and the lesser or the bigger and the smaller. And he was saying, look, if they're doing this to me, the perfect one 
what are they going to do to you? If they're doing this to the green tree, that, you know, you'd normally put dry wood on a fire. If they're doing this to the green, what will they do to the dry? And he's bringing this challenge to them as they stand weeping, uh, watching him. Let's read on. And two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, let me just mention the skull. Uh, you probably think, well, surely Jesus was crucified on Calvary, wasn't he? Well, the place was called the skull in English. In uh, Greek, it was cranium. In Aramaic, it was Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvary. It's the same place, just different uh, languages. And it could have been shaped like a skull. It could have been a place where people died. And so that was why it was called that. But that's what it was. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus was crucified about nine o'clock in the morning. The sixth hour is 12, the ninth hour is three. The sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, the sun being obscured, it's a reference back to Amos, the prophet, uh, but we don't really know quite what happened. It went dark. Uh, people have talked about there being eclipse, but I've read some books and they say it can't have been an eclipse because it was Passover and Passover at the full moon and you can't have an eclipse at the full moon, apparently. So, you know, I'm not going to go into that, but I'll just mention it. It went dark. But then this other event occurred. The veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, I'm sure you have heard people preach about the veil of the temple 
because it was the veil around the Holy of Holies. It was the place where the high priest went only once a year on the Day of Atonement when he sacrificed for the sins of the people once a year and they received forgiveness from God in that moment. And he was only allowed to go in there once a year. And then the veil is torn in two. And, it's, and, and we read into that that in that moment of Jesus' death, it was no longer required for the high priest to sacrifice for the sins of the people because Jesus had done it. In Hebrews, it reads once for all. And that was what the, the veil being torn in two means. But I think there's also another alternative, not alternative, uh, additional meaning. You see, God had met with his people at particular points throughout the Old Testament. So he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And he led the people uh, into the wilderness with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And he met with Moses on the mountain where that was the presence of God. And when the temple was built, he said, I'm going to presence myself in the Holy of Holies. But now the veil is torn in two. And we know God is everywhere, but it's like God is now presencing himself with his people. That's what the, that's what the death of Jesus has accomplished, that God is now with us. And so when Jesus uh, commissioned his disciples and said to them, go into all the world and I will be with you until the end of the age. And then I'll be with you or you'll be with me forever. That's what he has accomplished. And then at Pentecost, the Spirit comes and God is literally with us, his believers, those who responded in faith to him. He fills us with his Holy Spirit. God is with us. That is what the veil of the temple being torn in two means to you and to me. Verse 46, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed, his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. Now, I'm going to pause there. Uh, we're going to hear a testimony in a moment. Uh, and then I'm going to go on. And I just want to look at the words of Jesus from the cross. Now, there were seven in all. Uh, we're not going to look at all seven. I'm just going to look at the ones that are recorded in Luke. So now is your moment. I'm going to get the mic. And someone's just going to come and share their testimony of how they became a Christian. Don't all rush. Three minutes. That's your challenge. <laughs> Take less than that. Well done. <laughs> Take it down a bit. Yes, good morning, everybody. Um, Morgan has been talking about a divine moment when Jesus died, and he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
uh, I was brought up um, in the Church of England. I, my parents never went with us, but we used to go to Sunday school, and it was a f- quite a high church. But then as I grew up, I just drifted away. Um, my husband is in shipping, and we did a lot of traveling. We lived in different countries. Uh, one of the countries we lived in was Greece, and at that time, um, there were lots of things going on. My husband, of all places, was in the Turks and Caicos Islands, <laughs> a lovely place to be in the Bahamas. I was in Athens. Uh, we lived in a sixth-floor apartment, and it was siesta time, and I was resting. My children were in their cots and their beds, and suddenly, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a ship at sea that goes like that, comes up straight, and goes like that, and then goes like that, and goes like that. Well, that's what our apartment building started Mm. to do. So I rushed and picked up my daughter from the cot, dragged Simon out of his bed, and we sheltered under the door. And I know exactly how long it lasted, because all I could think of was the Lord's Prayer, because I thought the whole building was going to collapse on top of us. And I got through about 30 seconds, but if you think 1001... 2002, 2003, Mm. terrifying. People downstairs were screaming, pictures falling off the wall, windows bulging. And I remember when it stopped, I said, God, if you exist, if you really exist, please show me. Because I remember just looking at a blank wall with sort of a sepia um, paint on it. And it was from that moment in time that the Lord put born-again, spiritual Christians across my path. It took time, but that's how I became, Mm. from that defining moment, a Christian. Wonderful. Thank you, Sheila. Excellent. That was straightforward, wasn't it? Is there anyone else who wants to do that? So I want to look at the three uh, phrases that Jesus uses uh, as he's on the cross. Um, there are the seven. Uh, the, the others are mentioned in other Gospels. But I want to look at the first and the second and the last uh, are what um, Luke references in his Gospel. So this first one, when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who was he talking about? Well, it could have been the Roman soldiers, because there would have been four or six Roman soldiers who would have escorted Jesus with a centurion uh, to uh, Golgotha, to Calvary, to the place of the skull, and there they would have nailed him to the cross, they would have set it up, they would have ensured that he died. That was their responsibility. So he could have been saying they don't know what they're doing. They're just acting under orders. He could have been talking about the crowd, the wider group of people who had come to watch a crucifixion, which I find unbelievable, but, you know, they were there watching on. It could have been those who were more directly involved in him being there in that place, the the Pharisees particularly, those who had plotted uh, to bring him to this point of death because they didn't like what he was saying. He could have been 
saying that, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But then you think, well, hang on, the Pharisees surely knew exactly what they were doing. But you see, just as those Roman soldiers were under orders and carrying out their the function, so there was uh, an enemy behind the scenes uh, working on those Pharisees and others to bring Jesus to that point of death. And Jesus is able to say, Father, forgive them, because they, they really don't know what they're doing. But Jesus is able to do something and say something in that moment, which is remarkable, really, when you think that all of those people had accumulated their uh, evil, if you like, to bring him to that point. And even as he's on the cross, he's able to say, forgive them. And he's, he's actually putting into action what he had taught his disciples earlier, what we know as the Lord's Prayer about forgiveness and the way that we forgive others and we receive forgiveness from the Father. Jesus is demonstrating it in that very moment. But he's also asking the Father to do something that is only possible because he's there on the cross. Because it's his sacrifice that is going to enable the Father to forgive those who come to him in repentance. And we read, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin. Why? Because Jesus was hanging on the cross. So that phrase, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, applies equally to us. You know, we've sung, uh, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Yes, the nails held his body, but that forgiveness comes to us as well as we repent uh, before him. And then there was this interaction with the other criminals that led to Jesus saying, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And there's some strange things here because you've got this one who says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us, which is ironic, really, if he only understood what was going on, because Jesus had the ability to step down from the cross, but if he had saved himself, he wouldn't have saved them. He wouldn't have saved us, because it was his sacrifice that brought salvation for us. He needed to stay on the cross in order to achieve what he was setting out to achieve. And clearly, that criminal didn't get it. But the other one did. And in fact, when you look at the things that that criminal said, he had a better understanding than most of the disciples who had been with Jesus for three years. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. I mean, that is a remarkable statement to make. You know, he could have said, he's done nothing wrong to deserve crucifixion. But he didn't. He said, he's done nothing wrong. He recognized something in Jesus that even the disciples didn't see. 
And then he says something which I know we've heard again and again and again, probably every year around Easter time, that he says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What a ridiculous thing to say to somebody who is hanging on a cross. Have you ever thought of that? Why? I mean, he's dying. How, how can that criminal say, remember me? He's not going to remember anything. He's going to be dead in a few hours. But no, he says, remember me when you come in your kingdom. He saw something in Jesus which had eternity written on it. And he sees something beyond He knows that Jesus is going to die, just as he knows he is going to die. But he sees, oh, actually, there's my body that will die, but my soul can meet with Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus affirms him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. What a remarkable uh, phrase to respond how that criminal must have felt in that moment. He'd sort of gone out on a limb and said, remember me in your kingdom. And that's the response he gets, which is amazing. And let me just say, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And paradise and heaven are the same place. If you look in Revelation, the words are interchangeable. He's saying, you're going to be with me in heaven today. Now, how is that possible? Because we know that, as it were, there's, Jesus is coming again, and in that moment, the end, everything will be wrapped up, and, and then sort of heaven begins. But he says today, and there's a mystery, which we can't fully explain, but it's a huge encouragement for anyone who has lost a loved one who is a believer in Jesus. How many Thanksgiving services or funeral services have you been to where, you know, you hear that phrase, no, they're, they're now with Jesus. Because Jesus comforts us and encourages us with that assurance that when we die, we are with him. I don't understand the timing of it, but it's like there's Jesus in the middle here. And on this side, there's, there's the life of time. And then when we die, there's the life of eternity and somehow... We're in it, even though he's not yet come again. But that's the assurance we have today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then finally, this third phrase, when he says, he's with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, an amazing thing to say, because in that moment, it also says he breathed his last. So in other words, he died. So he is giving up his spirit. It wasn't the hanging on the cross that killed him. He gave up his spirit. He was a willing sacrifice. Every year, the high priest would have gone into the Holy of Holies and having had slaughtered a lamb or a goat. And I can guarantee you, in all the centuries that that had come, there wasn't one who went willingly, yeah, kill me. But Jesus went willingly. He 
allowed himself to be sacrificed so that our sins can be forgiven. And so in that moment, he says, Father, I'm now, this is the moment, I, it's over to you. My work is done and I'm trusting you to bring me back to life again on the third day. Now, I can tell you the end of the story because there was a resurrection and it did happen. And God, the Father, did what Jesus asked him to do to bring him back to life. But I don't want to steal Quincy's thunder for next week when we're going to celebrate the resurrection. But again, what a remarkable phrase that he uses. In that moment, I'm giving myself over to you and I'm trusting you in resurrection. So, And we have that same moment. As we give ourselves to Jesus and we say, I trust you, I make you Lord of my life. We're, as it were, stepping into Jesus' shoes. As he said, I'm committing myself to you and believing that you will do good to me. And that's what he says to us. And then finally, let me just say, the centurion saw what had happened and he began praising God, saying, certainly this man is innocent. And, you know, next week we will celebrate the resurrection but I'd love us now to praise God for the crucifixion because just as that centurion recognized the wonder of what Jesus has done. So 